I hope I navigated the flitting of the eyes between the intro and the camera appropriately because I've got to print it out in front of me here. You did. I, I thought you were batting your eyelids at me. I... <laughs> <laughs> this is Ezra Firestone from smartmarketer.com and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on the Productive Insights Podcast. Best podcast you ever listened to. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. I'm Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com. Now, this episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights podcast editing service, which takes away all the pain of podcast editing. All you need to do is upload your file into a Dropbox folder or a Google Drive folder, and we'll take care of the publishing onto your WordPress site and onto iTunes. If you want to find out more, just book a call with me on callashroy.com, and we can talk about how to get started today. Hello, and thanks for tuning into the Productive Insights podcast. Today's guest is the Global Director of Dent and Key Person of Influence, which is a training and advisory company that runs business accelerators for the founders of six and seven figure businesses that specialize in services. By the age of 25, he was appointed co-director of Dent's Australian subsidiary, and at the age of 27, he joined the Global Board of Directors. Since starting with the company as a university graduate, he's consistently run highly successful large-scale promotional campaigns, generating tens of millions of dollars of new business, contributing to Dent placing 63rd on BRW's Fast Starters list in 2014. He's now helping lead the next wave of dense global expansion and is known for his ability to enter uncharted territory and being able to make it rain. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mike Reed <laughs> from dentglobal.com. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Ash, thank you very much for the kind intro and for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. I hope I navigated the flitting of the eyes between the intro and the camera appropriately because I've got to print it out in front of me here. You did. I, I thought you were batting your eyelids at me. I... <laughs> Well, I, I must confess that you are a very attractive man, but unfortunately, I I was not. You're a married man. You're a married <laughs> I'm man. I'm a married I, man. I Thank you. That. I appreciate that. Okay. So, Mike, let's talk about business. You've had a hand in growing several businesses at an amazing pace, and that obviously means you've helped some key businesses make a massive impact. And more importantly, the owners of these businesses really make a big impact. Could you talk to us about the five biggest skills you believe have contributed to this hyper growth and how that's led to a big impact in their businesses. Yeah, totally. Um, so look for the for the listeners who maybe don't have a lot of context. Dent is a we're a training and advisory company. We we operate uh, business accelerators, which means we bring together a really incredible faculty of mentors, as online learning, peer to peer support, access to resources, and we create a, a high performance environment for entrepreneurs to go through over about twelve months to help them develop as key people of influence in their industry. And uh, we've been doing this for seven years in seven cities around the world. And um, and so we've now we've worked with three thousand founders to actually help them build their brands, raise their profiles, become more 
recognised leaders in their field, and, and primarily they were all people who were they were good at what they did to begin with. They had plenty of uh, industry experience, and they had established businesses, but they were just struggling to work out how to position themselves and their brand. And so, through the process of helping to build them as key people of influence, there there are five kind of skills that we actually work with them on. So. These five things are the things that I see for primarily any service-based business, particularly where you've got a founder who's got plenty of industry experience, they've got lots of intellectual property, lots of insights to share and thought leadership, that when they focus on these five areas, that's kind of tends to be what what actually really leads to a lot of growth and uh, helps them differentiate and stand out from their competition. So the five things are pitching, how they communicate their value proposition, and actually really being clear on who they're talking to and what are the problems they're solving and what's causing those problems for their customers and being able to communicate with their customers in a way that the customer feels like that person understands them better than they understand themselves. And I, and I think that's really kind of the, the uh, test of a really powerful pitch is when you can communicate to someone and to them, it feels like you get them better than they get them, get themselves. Well, you mean they understand their customers better than their customers understand themselves? Yeah, exactly right. right. You know, for anyone listening, I don't know if you can ever relate to that uh, time where, let's say, you know, you're talking to a prospect if you if you run a business, yeah. and um, you can recognise that they're making some common mistakes, hmm. which are causing some of the problems they've got. Yet, from their advantage of awareness from their their perspective they don't yet recognize that the things they're doing are causing you know those particular problems and that's having an effect on their business so for example you know if you're let's say you know someone's running running a business and they're doing traditional forms of marketing like a letterbox drop for example and let's say they're a real estate agent or a real estate company from their perspective they feel that that's tried and tested and proven and what they've always done and what's always worked and yet they can't figure out why their business is stagnating Mm -hmm. and yet from their perspective they don't necessarily know there are other ways to go about marketing and communicating to their market or their audience and so you know an effective pitch is being able to help illuminate that blind spot that someone missed before yeah so that's the first skill is pitching and always a powerful pitch will hands down beat a better product that's a great point yeah, you'll see companies out there that uh, have an, and, and this is probably a big frustration for a lot of people where, you, you know, your competitors have an inferior product and yet they seem to be doing better. They seem to be making more money. And a lot of that's got to do with how effective their sales, marketing, communications and pitching is. I think if you can articulate a problem to a customer that they haven't articulated themselves or that they've always known about it on a deeper level, that gives you an implicit level of trust that you earn with that customer. Uh, absolutely because as like and this is one of the things i talk a lot about ash with a lot of people and just in the course of doing what what we do is if you can give someone an insight right help to raise their awareness or let them see a blind spot they were missing in their life or their business and all of a sudden someone has that realization where suddenly they get it they see the problem that they were missing before Mm. if you've been the person to deliver that implies that you've got the ability to then solve the problem as well exactly and in that moment of delivering that kind of light bulb yes. for that person, competition becomes irrelevant. Correct. It's cathartic. And that epiphany that the customer experiences with you really delivers that trust, which then allows you to name your price to an extent. I mean, as you said, the competition then gets relegated into the background, almost into irrelevance. Bingo. And for us, that's where we see a lot of people, a lot of our clients differentiating is they're not going after the where the majority of their competition are targeting their sales, marketing, advertising efforts that the people already see and recognize they've got the problem and they're actively looking for a solution. Mm. They're getting in front of a whole dormant market and an unaware market and being able to present 
offers and content and things to them that wake up that dormant market and deliver insights and those light bulb moments at scale. And a podcast is a really great way to do that. You yes. know, for example, someone listening to a podcast maybe unaware of a particular problem they've got and it's in the course of listening to a podcast, which is easy to do, yes. it's valuable. There's, you know, it's a uh, it's an easy first step for them to take. There's no cost to them. It's high engagement because people are often listening while driving to work and so on. Another question I had is, you know, in terms of those levels of marketing awareness, I remember studying it in my MBA, but there were five stages of awareness. Where would you say you are meeting your audience in those five stages? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, and I, I'm not aware of like a, a breakdown of different stages, but um, but I do think about this kind of spectrum of awareness. So yes. there was this kind of spectrum of awareness where on one hand, one side of the spectrum, you got people who are very aware they've got a problem and they're actively looking for a solution. That yep. These are the people that in any industry will shop around for a variety of quotes and they'll get the three quotes and they'll pick one. It's so hard to differentiate. Even if you've got a great brand, a great value proposition, if you're being compared to other uh, providers, right. it's very hard to differentiate and stand out. Whereas if you get someone like anywhere back on this spectrum, whether it's like right at the other end of the spectrum or back here, you kind of, there's this, there's this, uh, I believe there's this threshold point where someone moves from unaware to aware. And that's kind of, for me, I see that as that light bulb goes off and they have that penny dropping insider realization. And so where a lot of our clients and where we recommend you should be creating your content and developing great offers and gifts and you know valuable products for the market that are an easy first step for them to take is back at this lower end of the spectrum of awareness. The word that comes to my mind is authority, which I learned from Brian Clark, who I've featured in episode 116, building authority. And I think what you're saying is you build your authority early in the piece. It's a little bit like pharmaceutical companies will try and woo doctors when they are still studying medicine before they go into the workforce. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Bingo. And, um, and so, you know, then, then the next challenge becomes, okay, how do you get in front of those unaware people? If they're not aware that they've got a problem or they're looking for a solution at that point in time, how do you how do you present ideas to them in a way that really turns them on and turns that light bulb on? And so, you know, I can maybe share sort of some ideas as to how we do that in a, in a second. But, but that's at least the first skill, pitching. The, the second, from my perspective, is around just unpacking your IP and publishing that in the form of content, whether it's turning it into blogs, articles, books, podcasts, whatever it may be. But the vast majority of whether it's corporate leaders or, you know, whether it's someone's a lawyer, an accountant, a physio, a chiropractor, a personal trainer, any kind of service, they've got lots of intellectual property and they're standing on a wealth of knowledge in mm -hmm. their field. But the challenge is all that stuff's up in their head. And so uh, the process of publishing is about pulling that out of your head, extracting it and putting it into a format that can actually allow that insight to scale. A podcast is a really powerful way to scale insights. A book is a really powerful way to be able to scale insights. And so publishing is is the second skill. The third is around um, making smart decisions around the products that you choose to align with or sell. So whether you're in an organization or you're developing products yourself, all the best organizations and the most successful companies in the world have an ecosystem of product. Okay. And they don't focus on any just one individual product or service, but they're looking at how do they build an ecosystem of offers and products and services that can service their market over a long period of time and yep. solve a variety of uh, of different problems at different stages in that person's journey. So as an example, BMW's core product is selling cars. Mm -hmm. However, for someone who's not yet ready to buy a BMW, you can buy merchandise, you can buy books on BMW, you can buy 
you can go to events, you know, with BMW and test drive the cars, track days and whatever else. BMW sponsors things like the rugby or sporting events or maybe it's a Grand Prix or whatever it may be. So the brand gets out there through those kind of means. And, you know, those events wouldn't be possible without the sponsorship of brands like, say, BMW, for example. Is that meeting your audience where they are on their journey so they may not be ready to buy a bmw just yet but they might be ready to buy some paraphernalia i remember i talked to joe polizzi in episode 75 and he said the same thing about content he said it's so important to create content that meets your buyer where they are on their journey so if you're creating washing machines if you're a washing machine manufacturer it's not necessarily about creating content about why your washing machine is the best it might be about creating content around the difference between a front loader and a top loader because that's where your audience is before they buy a washing machine. Bingo. And and that's very much coming back to this idea of knowing your customer better than they know themselves type thing. It's, it's you know, having that insight into where are they at in their journey of, of discovery or journey of awareness. But um, yeah, while BMW has its core product as the car, you know, for, again, for someone who wants to build a relationship with BMW and build a relationship with the brand, but it's not yet ready to buy the, the car, then the the paraphernalia, the merchandise, the whatever else is a great first step. And then finally, BMW makes as much or, you know, or any kind of similar car manufacturer often makes as much profit from selling the money to buy the car as they do the car itself. So the finance that goes with the vehicle itself, that's a highly profitable product. The reason that's a really profitable product is because all the sales and marketing effort has been done to be able to get the person to buy the car. And then from the transition from making the decision to buy the car to then how am I going to finance the car, there's there's very little sales and marketing costs associated with that because it's already already a done deal. Yeah, and it's a complementary product. It's a complementary product. So so the, the best brands in the world are very good at figuring out how do they bolt together an ecosystem of these different products that can allow someone to be able to you know go on a journey with that brand for a long period of time. Another great example is the iPads, the iOS, Apple iPhones. You know, most people think of them as a product, but I actually think of them as a distribution channel for apps. That's another example of a product that is also part of an ecosystem. Yeah, bingo, bingo, absolutely. And Apple, Apple does it extremely well. Um, yeah. You know, but prior to you know, Apple, will consider you a core kind of customer, if you like. As soon as you've got the iPhone, the iPad, and the iMac all talking to each other in the iCloud, that's it. But until such time as you've got that ecosystem, you're still a prospect. If you just buy an iPod, you're sort of a prospect to them. Yes. So you, you haven't yet gone the full kit and caboodle. And then, um, and then apps is a good example of uh, you know for a virtually costless thing to deliver yes yeah so, so so products the third skill the fourth is around personal brand and profile we live in a world where the democratization of the tools and ability to be able to produce content products all sorts of different things to be able to share ourselves with the world and share thought leadership and insights uh, is, is entirely democratized and so there's never been a better time to use our personal brand to elevate our business, our products, our services, the the corporate brand that we align with, whatever it may be. And, you know, this is true of whether you're a, a person working in a corporation or you're running your own business. It's about how we connect ourselves, the humanity of who we are yes. with, rest, with the rest of humanity. And, and as human beings, we relate to other human beings. We don't relate to faceless brands. It's the reason why when you're walking down the street, you know, you can see someone from afar and you can recognize their face from a distance and yet not remember their name. Hmm. Whereas, you know, most people, if I asked you sort of, you know, what are the colors of the logo of Google, for example, or the colors and the letters, very few people would know that off the top of their head. Great point. So people relate to people, not brands. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think a personal brand as well, Ash, is something that develops over time. It's one of those yes. things that Great point. kind of like adding layer upon layer upon layer. And then, you know, if you kind of think about everything that you're putting out there 
kind of like putting a paper thin sort of layer into this brand that you're developing you know you know sometimes you put some things out maybe they don't resonate or whatever it may be but just i recommend focus on being prolific over trying to necessarily be perfect as well but uh however i i do very much agree that um you know there'll be there'll be some things that are off brand and on brand and you know over time and distance i've got a very good sense as to what's sort of on brand for me and i um you know i'm pretty open with what i post or put out there because i just personally believe that unless i can be truly who i am Mm. and if my you know unless my brand can very much reflect truly who i am then i don't really want to build a personal brand around anything else so so hence why i just sort of uh, share based on who i am and so yeah and it's the easiest thing to stay consistent with right because you are you and sure we all evolve and so on but you know, if you create an image that is not you, it takes a hell of a lot of energy to keep that image up and to remember to, you know, oh, this is my public persona and this is my private persona. It's just so much easier to just be who you are. Bingo, right? And uh, you know, I often find it funny, actually, when people have a, maybe they have a public profile on Facebook and then they have their private Facebook uh, profile. And, and to me, it doesn't make sense. I, I think um, I think we live in a world where they need to be homogenized and, and ultimately that you know, in the service of your long-term contentment and happiness, if you're in a job that you don't feel you can be yourself, it's probably not the place to be. You know, you want to find something that uh, allows you to be be you. The fifth skill is around leveraging other players in your network or leveraging other organizations and doing partnerships, doing joint ventures, mm-hmm. and really leveraging off the existing resources and the existing brands that are already in in the industry so you know as an example if you're looking at a way to get greater distribution for your product or your content or whatever it may be and yet you don't have a big audience yourself then someone in the industry does already have a big audience Um, they've already got a lot of trust with a particular audience and yet you might have something that would be valuable to bring to that relationship and give to them and and they have something valuable for you in the relationship which is you know distribution to a to a wider audience for example and so it's about finding being very collaborative and then finding ways where you can take something that you've got and that's of value and offer it to someone else and uh and then uh, you know they they give something of value in return and create a uh, a balance of exchange and a partnership and ultimately that's a very quick way to and a leverage way to be able to expand your influence in your industry and uh, and you know create ultimately hyper growth what you mentioned at the beginning i'd like to add something to that when it comes to leveraging other players what you said in your previous point about developing a personal brand that is authentic i think that is very important because when you connect with other influencers or you try and leverage with them, I think that has to come from a space of authenticity. You must connect on a mission. There has to be at least a congruence of values because that develops that bond. You might not be able to bring a lot in quantitative terms, but you might be able to bring qualitative value in that you might be able to bring insights or a deep sense of purpose to that person's mission and add to that. And that is valuable too, but you can't do that unless you have an authentic connection. Mm, Bingo. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think people that uh, are authentic will always over time and distance uh, win over those that yeah. uh, try and find some sort of short-term gain. The thing in, when it comes to this idea of leveraging and leveraging other people in your industry or, or, you know, creating leverage with other people in your industry and partnerships is that I, I talk a lot about this 
concept of the balance of fair exchange. And so, you know, I think there's, it needs to, there needs to be an important alignment of values and ideology and philosophy with, with two people. But unless you create a balance of exchange, unless, you know, yeah. there, there's sort of this equal and fair kind of contribution from both sides in terms of whether it's time, energy, effort, resources, whatever it may be, but you both feel like you're valued in the relationship. Yeah. That's what makes a partnership work. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's true, true of a marriage, I guess. It's true exactly. of a relationship, but, you know, lots of different situations. You know, whereas if you're receiving a lot and not giving a lot, in return, then you have feelings of guilt because you're not, uh, you know, delivering your end of the bargain. Sure. If uh, you know another another person's giving a lot and uh, not getting back much in return, they have resentment towards that other person, that relationship. And often, what happens with referral partnerships and referral relationships is that one person may be a prolific referrer and the other, per- you know, and the other person's not getting much in return and not giving yes. back much in return. Yes. And again, over time and distance, that's going to erode the trust and the yes. value of the relationship and it's going to fall apart. So, yeah, I'm always thinking about how do I create fair exchange? And then, you know, if things don't work out as we planned, then, you know, I'll, I'll backfill. I'll do additional things to figure out a way I can bring the laws of exchange into balance. And perhaps, you know, at the end of that process, you may go, well, it's not uh, economical or worthwhile for us to continue the relationship, but at least you can leave it knowing that you've left the balance of exchange intact. I love how you explain that, a balance of fair exchange. People always talk about finding the right one. Well, I think, sure, you need to find the right one, but part of finding the right one is about asking yourself, can I be the right one for this person? You know, mm. And the same applies for business relationships. I think it's important you ask of yourself, well, what can I bring to the table here? What value can I bring to this situation? If you don't know and you want to do a JV with someone, then maybe ask them, hey, what's valuable to you? Try and understand what they want out of it and see if you can offer that. Because if you can't, then even if they can give you what you want, you're not going to be able to do the fair exchange and then it's not going to work in the long term. Another point I just want to make is it's uncanny how you said layer upon layer upon layer, because those were the exact words that John McGrath used when I interviewed him in episode 122, I think it was. We were talking about becoming a prolific business owner, and we talked about how it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. I want to just bust a myth here. Everyone has this obsession online. People still seem to think that online success is somehow overnight. And if it doesn't happen overnight, they turn around and walk away. Well, In my experience, it takes hard work like anything else. Online is just a distribution channel. It's just a way of delivering your product or your information or whatever. But it takes work, man. And it takes a lot of work and consistency Mm -hmm. and effort. And, you know, you got to be in the trenches and build layer upon layer upon layer. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, bingo, right? And look, I think a lot of the people that are very successful with online marketing or you know building uh, building strong uh, brands and presence online, uh, they've been doing this for years. Like the yes. people, most people make the mistake that they think that it's you know just this pop person's popped up and all of a sudden yeah. they're super popular. They've probably in most cases usually run some kind of a business for many many years before that. They've been that's it. They've been students of uh, sales and marketing for for many many years. Yes. They've invested loads of money in trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And put a lot of time and energy into figuring out the growth hacks and all that kind of thing, and, and good on them. They've they've got a product that people want. They're able to, and you know, look. Albeit there are, of course, lots of junk out there, and there's lots sure. of stuff that maybe some people are promoting that doesn't actually deliver upon what it promises, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, hats off to them; they've uh, they've got there through not not luck, but uh, a bit of luck and and hard work as well. Yeah, I think that when I see people say stuff like you know, make a million dollars overnight. 
I see red flags because yes, you can make a million dollars overnight, but it takes 10 years to get to the point where you can make a million overnight. So my point is, you know, don't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter 21 and think that, you know, that's their chapter one, because often that what you're seeing as an overnight success is actually their chapter 21. And you haven't seen the first 20 chapters in the book because it never got published. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Okay. So since we're talking about joint ventures, there's something that we, you and I are thinking about, Mike, is working on creating, you know, promoting each other's content. We've talked about your book that we're going to be talking about a bit more in detail later in this conversation. And a course that I'm looking to launch called the Premium Productivity Course. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this book, the Key Person of Influence book, and how it can help our audience and what specific frameworks it can it, it includes to help them deliver their growth. I believe it, it covers these five topics that we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the book's a best-selling book that my business partner, Daniel Priestley, wrote uh, about seven years ago. And it um, essentially says that, look, in, in every industry, there are these key people of influence. There are these people that tend to get a lot of the opportunities. They have the most fun. They tend to make the most amount of money. And you can probably relate to those people in your industry. It's kind of like the John McGraths of the real estate world or whatever yeah. it may be. That There is this kind of top 10 to 20% of every industry where there are the players that are doing the best and doing doing very well. And then, unfortunately, there's the kind of 80% of the job that tend to fight over the scraps a little bit and uh, and so that they just they just uh, are kind of the average just based on the law of large numbers and statistics they're, they're kind of sitting somewhere in the average and so what we've found is that the majority of people that are kind of somewhere on the sort of the, the middle of their industry they're, they're in the vast majority. Um, they may be great technicians in their field. They you know, might be the lawyer who's very good at what they do or the accountant or whatever it may be, and they've got great technical expertise. However, they focus so much on developing their technical expertise that that's actually not the thing that's allowing them to really differentiate and stand out. And the things that do actually allow them to differentiate and stand out are these five principles. It's having a powerful way to communicate their value proposition, why they're different, why they're unique, how they connect the dots of their story and tell that story to the market in a way that the market really connects with and relates to that. Um, they're publishing great content and sharing their insights and stories and thought leaderships and, and methodologies and frameworks and philosophy and all that kind of thing. They're uh, really focused on you know building out great products and they've got an ecosystem of available things for people to engage with them around, uh, whether it's they can come to an event or they, uh, you know, they, they've got tools available online or they've got things like a book or a podcast, or they're producing great video content or whatever it may be. And um, and then they're uh, focused on, you know, leveraging traditional media and maybe appearing in third-party publications, or they're doing live appearances and speaking and uh, sharing their thought leadership through through those kind of platforms and channels. And uh, and then they're connecting with and partnering with other uh, key players in their industry. And uh, and so those five skills are the skills that we see create differentiation, help them stand out, and help them gain leverage uh, and lead to lead to a lot of that growth. The one area which, you know, I've had a lot of, uh, I guess, a hand in over the last seven years in our business has been around partnership. And, uh, you know, I really feel like partnerships is probably the, you know, probably the, the productivity framework, if you like, or the, the framework for significant growth that's made the, the biggest difference in, in our business. And, you know, for many, many years, we ran some large scale conferences with three or 400 entrepreneurs coming along at a time in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Yep. And uh, one of the ways we'd fill those events was through uh, joint ventures and partnerships. You know, I'd, I'd pick up the phone and cold call a 
a bunch of different businesses out there that I'd noticed or I'd found or I'd come across that I thought were doing great work and uh, we shared a similar audience with and they had the kind of services that I knew our audience would need and want and that they could really help our audience um, and vice versa. They had a, you know, whether it was a database or an audience of small business owners that would love to come to uh, an event like ours. And so I pick up the phone and, and have a conversation and pitch the idea of, uh, of us aligning and partnering together. And, and then we develop a lot of those relationships. And at times we might have you know, 100, 150 different partner relationships and, and channels who are helping us promote an event. And, cool. uh, and then, uh, and then, you know, we'd, uh, we'd, uh, take a select uh, group out of those and promote their businesses via our event. And so that was what allowed us to be able to run very large-scale campaigns. Um, it's kind of what, what you mentioned at the beginning of the call, you know, helping us place 63rd on the BRW Fast Starters oh. list. And because, you know, we had a, a lot of people come through the doors uh, in the sort of first few years of our business through running those events and by, by facilitating those partnerships. And that's actually the context in which you reached out to me, which is why we're even having this conversation, partnerships. So why have partnerships worked better than other marketing tools in your business in your opinion uh, why not uh, say facebook advertising and why did you choose partnerships over those other methods and I'm, I'm assuming you did maybe you didn't maybe you did yeah, those yeah, other yeah. things too well no so the, the really good question so when we were uh, sort of very focused on running these large events and, and very focused on developing these partner relationships um, there's a few things that i think for why i think partnerships are, are really powerful one is especially when you're starting out and you don't necessarily have a lot of existing resources. You might have a big database. You, you might have a, you know, a large audience or a lot of influence yet or whatever it may be. And yet with a powerful pitch and a, a great value proposition, it's possible to be able to get access to those missing resources. And so the reason we chose partnership back then as kind of our primary sort of lever, if you like, for growth was because, uh, A, you know, seven years ago, Facebook advertising wasn't nearly as sophisticated <laughs> as, as it is Correct. today. That's a good point. Yep. So, you know, not, it's a very, very different sort of world nowadays, obviously, from uh, from a marketing perspective. And that's why we've sort of shifted a bit of our marketing focus away from those things and, and harnessing more of the those channels like Facebook advertising today and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, it was a little bit of based on the times that we're in. But also, it's a very cheap and effective way to generate leads, generate an audience uh, without paying for advertising. So, mm. you know, if you think about traditional marketing was paying for a billboard ad or a banner ad or a news ad or whatever it may be through a traditional medium and you'd pay for that advertising up front. And often what would happen is you couldn't measure the effectiveness of it. Mm. And, uh, and irrespective of w- whether it was effective or not, you still paid the same amount of money. Right? Mm. So it, was, it, it wasn't on a results basis. Whereas the way we facilitate a lot of our partnerships was a results basis. So if um, you know that channel became an effective channel for us, we would highly reward that partner and we would through whether it's cross promotion whether it's uh you know some kind of an advertising fee or an affiliate fee if you like a referral fee we would reward that partner but if it didn't produce a result then we wouldn't and you know we we came to an agreement with those channels and those partners in the beginning that we you know we would work on that basis and that was based on fair exchange um you know transparency if it didn't create a result for one another then you know we we didn't get a lot out of it but if it did create a result for one another we you know we would get a lot out of it together and um and uh, and so yeah, so w- when you're in startup or when you're in early stage, whatever it may be, it's just a very cost-effective way to mm. um, to be able to get access to a, an audience you you know previously didn't have access to. I'll tell you what else I really like about the idea of a partnership approach over advertising. It's kind of related to the zero moments of truth. I don't know if, if you're familiar with the Google zero mm-hmm. moments of truth study, but uh, you know whatever ten or fifteen years ago, it took three of these Zmots or zero moments of truth 
three connections with a brand before people made a purchase decision. And now that number has gone from three to 15 or whatever. And I think there is something similar that applies in the advertising world. You know, we call it banner blindness. You know, you could before maybe with two ads or three Facebook ads or two or three clicks, your conversion rate might, you you might end up getting a lead. Whereas today it might be more clicks that you need to get a conversion because people have less trust in advertising generally and um, because of just desensitization over time. However, Mm. if you use the partnership approach and if you select your partners carefully where they actually do have a good relationship with their audience, they have already done the trust building. So it's a lot more organic in a sense, you know, getting that person's trust. And of course, you have to honor that. You know, you don't want to create content or products that are not relevant to offer content or products that are not relevant to your JV partner. That said, as a JV partner, I would also say, if you're listening to this, it is your responsibility as your stewardship function, if you like, as the keeper of your tribe, as the leader of your tribe, to ensure that they don't get bombarded with irrelevant products. So if someone comes to you with a JV offer, you have to make sure that it is relevant to your audience. It's not the responsibility of that JV person to make sure it is. So you need to be the gatekeeper. And you know that's how you retain the trust. Mm, yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And um, and and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Ash, because that that is one of the uh, reasons why, again, I think partnerships is a, just such an effective way to uh, engage with an audience. Because for that very reason, that um, a it's a often a cheaper form to connect with that audience than you know traditional advertising or even Facebook and Google advertising. But b yes, they've already got a lot more trust and rapport. So you know the conversion rate of a Facebook ad versus a email that's sent from a you know, partner to a, already an existing database that they have no like and trust and have a relationship with uh, will be far, far higher with the partner than it will be with that cold audience through a channel like Facebook or whatever it may be, even despite Facebook's incredible uh, targeting yeah, abilities yeah, nowadays. exactly. I mean, targeting helps and, you know, being able to put your offer in front of the right person definitely helps, but it doesn't build trust. It builds, you know, it increases your conversion rate. But if you're going to be that clinical about it, you need to understand that it's never going to be the same as a warm conversion, you know, and by the way, you know, the word conversion, when I'm using the word conversion, I just want to clarify, you know, it can apply to two different situations. One explanation or one meaning for the word conversion in this context is when someone lands on your ad and then becomes a lead. So someone seeing your ad and then clicking on the ad and subscribing to your to whatever it is you're offering them. And then there's a second conversion that happens from when someone subscribes to your free offer as a lead and then becomes a customer. So there's two levels of conversion. But conversion, whichever level it's at, requires trust. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Okay, so let's talk about this book then. Where does a listener go to get a copy of this book if they want to get one? That is a great question. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we can obviously put it in the show notes, but yeah. um, look, I mean, the simplest thing to do is just to either go to Amazon or to Booktopia and just type in key person of influence. Yep. But, uh, but Ash, I'd be, I'd be happy to, um, uh, you know, for, again, for a, uh, a known and liked and trusted audience, I'd be happy to perhaps um, uh, offer a few copies as a gift as well. Oh, so if, um, you know, you. Thank you. for anyone, anyone that would like a copy of the book, perhaps I can organize to get you a link and they can uh, put their postal address in and we'll, we'll post one out with our compliments as well. Oh, that would be awesome. I really appreciate that. But I think to be fair to our audience and to be fair to you, we should put some kind of a cap on it so that people don't expect, you know, maybe you we say either the first 50 books or 20 books or whatever it is you decide and a specific timeline by which time they can get it after which they can't yeah, get it. That, that would fine. be fair. Um, perhaps, perhaps I'll uh, set aside uh, maybe tw- 20 books at the most, let's say. Yep. 
Okay. And let's put a, a time limit on it as well, just to you know make sure that people get to it sooner rather than later. So by 31st of December, 2017, if you haven't got it, then you're not going to get it. <laughs> okay. Good idea. That sounds like a <laughs> fast <problem>. mover bonus. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, now talk about the things that you have found that have worked best in terms of these JV partners or people you've seen in business that have been really successful. What things do they do in their day that sets them apart and makes them more successful? In other words, what are their productivity hacks? Yeah. So maybe I can just sort of talk about, you know, the kind of the idea of uh, maybe how to plan, how to plan the day. Yeah. It's funny because I think very successful people have a both a mix of planned and unplanned or unstructured time in their day. And planning works very well for kind of optimization and I guess performance and productivity, but I don't believe it works so well for creativity. You know, I think Spot creativity on. happens happens in the white unstructured space of our lives. Yes. It's it's when we disconnect, it's when we unplug, it's when we, you know, turn all the notifications off on our phone and we get out into nature and and uh, and actually reconnect with the natural world that we start to open up to this kind of whole new level of creativity. And so, you know, I think in business, Ash, probably one of the most important productivity hacks is just extreme focus. You know, there are, of course, many, many tools out there and there's all sorts of things that we can use. And, you know, I feel philosophically, I have this kind of slight objection to the way that the world is kind of evolving in the sense that we're becoming so optimized and mm. like so sort of over-optimized that we we kind of lose a bit of the sense of uh, what it means to be human and to have a bit of that like downtime and creative time and, uh, you know, form new ideas and, uh, you know, come up with great new innovations and inventions and whatever it may be. Yet there's this great expectation from the world that we're constantly on and we're constantly yes. productive. Yes. It's like with email compared to what it was traditionally like when you received a letter. When you received a letter from someone in the mail, you know, you would uh, receive that letter and you would read it and you would contemplate it and yes. you would consider it and you would then take some time to write a considered response and yes. you would send that back. And there was no expectation that, you, you know, someone would get a response to that letter, you know, within a week or a couple of weeks even or whatever it may be. Yet an email gets sent nowadays and if you don't respond in two days, it's like that person's bugging you again going, where's my response? And, uh, and so we sort of, it's kind of funny uh, that all these productivity tools and all these sort of technologies that are available today to make us more Productive. I'm not so sure are necessarily always making us more productive. So I think very successful people are very good at uh, having a few rituals that help them to clear their head and to keep focused in, in the day. So as an example, in the morning, I do a, um, not necessarily all the time, but you know, as consistently as I possibly can, uh, I'll do a bit of a morning kind of meditation and a morning gratitude, just, just getting, um, uh, you know, kind of my mindset and my psychology into a, a good positive state of mind. Which, um, which I think is, you know, a really important part of being, uh, you know, like performing well in, in life, sure. being a being a good good human, and uh, and then I might listen to a bit of music to get me into a bit of a peak state nice. or into a um a high performing sort of state. So I listen to some pump up kind of music. So yep. take that take that uh, morning gratitude and then uh, awesome. really lock it in and anchor it in with uh, yep. a positive uh, state. Kind of and, stacking uh, it. Uh, kind of habit yeah, stacking. Right. Yeah. Habit stacking, yeah. Well, that's a great way to put it, yeah. And then, um, and then maybe journaling and just doing a, a bit of journaling. And so, uh, my format for journaling over the uh, in my notebook, and I do this by pen. So I'm just pretty old school with oh, a nice too. notebook and a, and a pen, and I just like that kind of. The tactile thing is just awesome, isn't it? Exactly right. So, right, right. so I'll write. I'll answer six questions. I'll say first thing is how am I feeling, and yep. I'll give an answer to that. What's my intention for the day? 
Yeah. Um, what am I grateful for? And I write down just a few things. Uh, what are my lessons learned from the previous day? What am I excited about? And what am I afraid of? And I'll answer mm-hmm. those six questions and then I'll maybe create a bit of a to-do brain dump of what's on my top of mind of to-do things I need to do. And maybe there's a list of, you know, six to a dozen different things or something like that. I bet, you know, Tim Ferriss would say it's probably better to have like your top three things. Yeah. But uh, I end up having a bit of a list like that of the stuff on my mind. And then I'll put a number next to it as to one, two, three, four, five. You know, what's the, the order in which I want to do those things? And I'll go out and try and get those things done. I particularly do that when I'm feeling overwhelmed. If mm. I'm feeling on point, I'm feeling focused, I know what I need to do. I might need, I might do that in that day, just organically don't feel I need to do it. But if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I'm feeling stressed, uh, just that process of writing it down is super helpful. And so that would be the start of the day and then you know for the rest of the day it's whatever kind of the top three things are my objective is i'm just constantly trying to bring myself back to extreme focus don't yes all the notifications on my computer or my phone uh, are typically turned off so i don't get slack notifications i don't get mm-hmm. facebook notifications or any social media e- email etc there's no little red icons that pop up on any of that sort of stuff unless mm-hmm. it's a text message or unless it's a facebook message or a whatsapp message everything else is turned off the sound on my phone is turned off except for a phone call so i don't get a ping when a message comes through because every time that you get any of that it's pavlovian absolutely right you get that stuff come through and it interrupts your flow and it interrupts your focus and it takes you 20 or 40 minutes to get back into that same flow state uh, and you lose productivity and for all the tools that are available out there i think there's some simple things like that uh, actually create the most focus and productivity you can have. I couldn't agree more, man. Context switching, that it takes, I, I believe, about 20 minutes on average to switch back from one context to another. That's apparently what it costs each time. And what you talked about with the ping is context switching because we're all programmed. We hear the ping and we kind of reflexively just respond to that ping and have to go and check our, our message. And I actually talk about this in great detail in a course that I'm going to release soon called Premium Productivity. And you can learn more about it at premiumproductivity.com. And basically, it's about using the Eisenhower framework, which Stephen Covey appropriated in, and called it the four quadrants. But it's essentially, you know, the ping of your phone is stuff in quadrant three, stuff that is urgent, but not important. You know, it's got this urgency to it. But the stuff that you're talking about, Mike, is the stuff in quadrant two, the strategic stuff that is important, but not necessarily appearing as urgent. But over time, that is what mm. will make or break your business. And, mm. you know, I'm so glad you brought up this point about productivity not being about, you know, this frenetic drive to finish stuff. And in my course, I actually say that at the, in the very first module, I say, Productivity is not about getting more done in less time, at least not according to me. It's actually about getting the right things done at the right time in the right sequence. And it's actually about doing less. It's about, as you said, focusing more on fewer things. And Jobs was prolific at this. And to me, one of the best ways to develop the right mindset for this is to have a mindfulness approach, which I've talked about in multiple episodes. It's about creating spaciousness in your mind. And yes, there is time for you to do quote-unquote busy work but when I say busy work I don't mean getting more done in less time I do think there is importance you need to be busy as in focused and engaged maybe the word I should be using is engaged and not busy but you need to be very careful about task selection and time boxing and decide what tasks you're going to do in the day and what you're actually not going to do. So, you know, it, this is where your effective hourly rate comes in, which is basically your annual profit or your weekly or monthly profit. I learned this from James Framco. It's a great tool. I always knew it, but he articulated it beautifully to me. And that is basically if your effective hourly rate works out to say 100 bucks an hour after dividing your profit by the number of hours you 
put in to generate that profit, then if you're doing $10 an hour work, like editing your own podcast, you're costing your business 90 bucks an hour. And Mm. once you understand that, you are able to decide on what tasks you select. Of course, there are some things that cost the business, you know, that are only $10 an hour worth of work that you must do yourself because it's sensitive information or it's strategically important information, you know, hiring staff. I think at least in the beginning, you know, you need to be very careful and you need to do that yourself. You need to hire the right people with the right fit. But once you have hired them, you then need to train them to take on the stuff that works within their effective hourly rate their best effective value rate. So if their skill is editing and they bring the most value to the business as an editor, then you shouldn't be doing that editing. And you should never use the words, you know, oh, I might as well just do it myself because it might be easier to do it yourself in the short term, but it will cost you in the long term. This, of course, a lot of what I'm saying right now assumes you have a team, but the similar principle can be applied even if you're a solo entrepreneur. So Mm. yeah, spaciousness is very important. And I think creating that meditative space, whether it's through music, exercise, meditation, mindfulness, creating that room in your day, in your life for ideas to percolate and crystallize and germinate and then evolve into something else. You need that space. You know, plants not going to grow if you put a seed in the ground and keep pouring water on it, it's just going to drown. The seed's Mm. never going to... And so I think that's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Mm. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges to productivity that I see people face when I work with them because they're in this... They have this frenetic obsession about getting more done in less time. We walk around with this badge of busyness on our sleeves and, you know, oh, I didn't sleep through more than six hours last night. And that's like something people are proud of. The truth is, if you're not sleeping enough, you're actually less productive. Studies have shown this. And I try and think, and I, I don't sleep as much as I would like, and I'm trying to improve my sleep patterns. But when I haven't slept enough, I'm thinking to myself, well, it's because I was unproductive that I didn't sleep enough. It's because I didn't know when to switch off that I didn't sleep enough. Yeah, totally right. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, you know, I've written a post called the the stop glorifying your inbox or um, yes. you know stop glorifying uh, lack of sleep or whatever it may be. That uh, you know, as you say, we wear this badge of honor of the hustle or um, mm. the the glorification of getting lots of emails in our inbox and being so popular and whatever it may be. And yeah, I actually agree. I don't think it's something we just to be proud of or to glorify. I think mm. you know, I think it's probably a function of not being purposeful or, or um, specific enough in terms of how you're designing your life uh, in the yes. way that you want. Yeah. If you're working 16 hours a day for a consistent period of time, then the question you need to be asking yourself is, am I being productive? Not, oh, wow, I've been working so hard. Yeah. And, and look, not to be on my high horse around this either. I, I suffer from all those things as well. And so it's a journey over time and distance, sure. I think, to cut away some of the fat from and the kind of the, the, the padding from our lives that we end up filling filling up our lives with stuff and and things to do and whatever it may be. And and yet over time and distance, I think I'm I'm personally going through a great sort of dematerialization in my life and um, and, a, and a decluttering of uh, whether it's material things that I've got that I no longer need or want or aren't uh, serving me anymore, or if it's particular work I'm doing that's no longer serving me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to constantly cut away the, uh, the noise to really pair back my world to what it, what do I love and what's important to me and what that's actually it. sets me alive and keeps me juiced and um, keeps me on fire. We are very symbolic creatures. And if we have a uncluttered physical space, as my wife often tells me, then uh, we are far more likely to have an uncluttered mind and therefore a more successful and happy life and a productive life. So 
Yeah, that's just great. I I think this is going to end up being a two-part episode because there's so much wealth in this conversation. I'm going to probably publish in two parts. But what I will do now is uh, do a wrap-up and do some action steps uh if that's okay with you and then you can yeah totally. you know add some stuff on at the end if you think i've missed anything or you'd like to add some action steps so we started off talking about the five steps to being successful uh which at, at the key person of influence you guys uh talk about the five p's i believe and so the first one was pitching which is about understanding your audience and the problem they're trying to solve and then being the becoming the trusted problem solver by creating relevant content and or products that solve that problem and that meet them where they are. The second step is about unpacking your IP and getting clear on what your specific uh, unique selling proposition is and how you are of service to your specific audience and how you can help them. So getting clear on that and unpacking that. The third one is making smart decisions around products and building an ecosystem around them, much like Apple does with their iPhones and their iPads and their Macs, all of which are linked through the through the cloud and iTunes, or as you use the example of BMW, creating paraphernalia, which allows them to become a part of their audience's life, even if they're not ready to buy a BMW just yet. Or we talked about Commonwealth Bank starting accounts for kids when they're little or pharmaceutical companies trying to woo doctors before they, when they're still medical students and trying to, you know, throw these parties for them and stuff like that to try and make them loyal to their brand so that when they become doctors, they prescribe their medications. And we all know pharmaceutical companies have plenty of money for that. I used to consult (laughs) them, so I know that. And then the fourth step was building a personal brand and profile. And the key here is authenticity and being prolific over time, the layer upon layer upon layer argument. You're not going to become a brand overnight. And even if you do, it's not going to have as much depth and gravity as it would if you built it over time. A good episode to listen to is the one I did with uh, Julie McDonald, the BBC news anchor who talks beautifully about building an authentic brand over time and about being yourself and being your authentic self because that's the easiest way to show up consistently. Because if you have this public persona that you have to keep reminding yourself who that is and then you have the separate personal persona, it just ends up being, I don't know, you end up being this dichotomized individual who probably will end up either neurotic and or psychotic. So my, my suggestion would be just be yourself and be a human being. And that leads very nicely into the fifth point, which is leveraging relationships with other joint venture partners. But again, doing that on an authentic basis and Asking of yourself, what can I bring to this relationship and how can I offer value so that you develop what you, Mike, explained was beautifully explained was a balance of fair exchange where both parties end up having something that they get out of the situation and neither party ends up feeling resentful. And then even if you do decide to go your separate ways at any point, you both feel like you have given and received more or less equal amounts of value. Then we moved into talking more about productivity and, you know, some of the key rituals around productivity. And you explained very beautifully that productivity is not about getting more done in less time. It's not about, you know, optimization and systems and processes. It's actually about being able to develop these rituals and creating spaciousness. And you do it through meditation and music and, you know, having a diary and writing specific questions, answering specific questions in your diary, like, how am I feeling? What am I grateful about? What am I excited about? What am I afraid of? And trying to, you know, preempt some kind of a, a, a context for the day and, you know, setting your intentions for the day. I think that's a fantastic thing to do. I think that keeps you on point. I would add to that maybe even you know, reacquainting yourselves with yourself with your three-month goals and your six-month goals, your five-year goals, so that you don't lose sight of the big picture. I felt in addition to that, you know, it's important to have uh, create spaciousness. And we both talked about decluttering and how Steve Jobs did that 
quite successfully and it was his whole life seemed to be all about that you know which was about minimalism and and decluttering and he as we all know was very influenced by the zen approach to thinking and that actually is what defined and still defines apple products you know that this whole minimalism which is why they have you know the features are, are minimalistic and the product is always designed to fade into the background it's all about functionality and you know a good product to them is an invisible product so that's a great mindset to use when you're approaching productivity. Is there anything else you would like to add to all that? So I think that was a really, really great summary, um, Ash. And the only thing I might add is that uh, while those tools, productivity tools are important, of course, you know, there are, there are systems and tools out there that help make our lives better as much as the phone is a tool and all that kind of thing. It does make my life better. It's just really about being in control yes. uh, of those tools as opposed to the tools being in control of you. That's and, it. Uh, and then also, you know, one of the philosophies we have within Dent is to uh, overinvest or to invest uh, more heavily in assets as opposed to the tools themselves. Oh, I love that and point. So, yeah. And so in life, income will follow assets. The more assets you're developing, and when I, when I say an asset, I'm talking about your personal brand as an asset. The more time mm-hmm. you spend developing some of the things that help your personal brand to expand and profile to expand, whether it be things like a podcast or mm-hmm. writing articles to help share your thought leadership or producing a blog, all those things are an asset. Or guest posting or, or launching a book. Yeah, exactly. Those things are the things to invest in as opposed to, you know, heavily investing in uh, in necessarily like either creating or building uh, the tools or getting lost in the tools as opposed to really putting your energy into developing the asset. I love that point. I, I really love that, you know, and assets, online assets are as important if not more important in some respects than offline assets. But whatever you do, always be building an asset. I've heard Glenn Carlson talk about this a lot, and I completely agree with it. I think, you know, you do need to build assets. And don't forget to build your own asset within yourself, which is just, you know, develop yourself as a human being. Because Mm. as you continue to invest in yourself and develop yourself, and I think mindfulness is one of the best ways to do this over time, you then become a valuable asset in and of yourself, which then mm. means that you can build more valuable assets. When you're creating a podcast, you bring more to the podcast. When you're writing a book, you bring more insight into the book. When you're having just a conversation with your partner at home, you're bringing more insight into that conversation. Exactly. And, and, I, and I just, you know, I would say that too. The thing I wouldn't want the audience, uh, the audience to get unclear on is this idea of, you know, a very clinical approach to, to life or to business. You know, when I talk about building the asset of you, it's like, it's very much what you said, Ash, of becoming a better human being yes. and becoming more self-aware and becoming kinder and more generous and, uh, and more caring and more present and all those kind of things. For me, that is part of developing yourself and your personal brand as well. And that's ultimately going to lead to better relationships. Absolutely happier relationships with spouse and kids and family and all the people that are important in your life. And, and ultimately, that's really what, uh, you know, I think in the end, uh, life is all about. And so absolutely. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is starting to, you know, border on the edges of spirituality. And uh, I do want to say while I'm vehemently non-denominational, and I don't endorse or, or disapprove of any particular belief system, uh, I do think that that is, in my opinion, the ultimate goal of most of us, you know, which is to just develop as human beings and develop our humanity, whatever that means. And 
when we get to the end of the road and, you know, we're going to meet our maker or, or, you know, depending on whatever your belief system is, you know, you're not going to be necessarily taking any of the online or offline assets with you. The biggest asset you'll be taking is is yourself and whatever development you have, presumably, whatever, you know, spiritual, emotional, psychological development you have had through your life. So, you know, please, if you're listening, don't lose sight of that. Now, everything I've had, all the, uh, all the, connections that I've had with KPI have always been very positive in this regard. And I would really like my audience to find out how they can find out more about you and KPI. So would you like to tell us how they can do that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, look, in terms of me, you can Google Mike James Reed or just go to my blog, MikeJamesReed.com. Um, and for KPI and Dent, uh, just simply Google Key Person of Influence or uh, or Dent Global and um, you'll find us pop up. And uh, there's lots of different things you can do, whether it's grab a copy of the Key Person of Influence book or we have a online scorecard where you can go and rate yourself in each of those five areas. So we talked about pitching, publishing, product profile, partnerships. There's 40 questions you can answer online if you um. Google key person of influence scorecard and um, it'll give you a, a profile like a like a psychometric test in, in each of those areas and, and spit out a score and a rating and give you some areas to improve and develop and then there's local events in every city that we run so um, plenty of things to, to check out and, and enjoy awesome well mike thank you for being on the show it was awesome to have you man mate uh, pleasure i appreciate it, it was a uh, it was a great conversation Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 